Hi, this is David Karp. I'm um, an appellate lawyer at Carlton Fields, and I'm here with my colleagues Aaron Weiss and Charles Throckmorton, who are two shareholders at Carlton Fields that work on consumer class actions. And we're really pleased to bring to you the first podcast that goes with Carlton Fields' classified blog. That is a blog that covers class and mass actions. And we're here today to talk about a recent case that was decided by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. And the case is called Drasden versus Pinto. And it's a case concerning a class action under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. Aaron, tell us a little bit about this case. What what happened and how did it get to the 11th Circuit? Sure. And let me give our standard disclaimer as we have on our classified blog that Whatever we say here are just our own views, not our clients' views, not the views of Carlton Fields and whatever the standard lawyer disclaimer is. But that aside, let me jump into it a bit. So Charles and I have been doing TCPA litigation. Some people call it robocall litigation for a dozen years or so. And Drazen's an interesting case. It came out of um, the Southern District of Alabama. And Drazen was a... TCPA class settlement. Now, there had been a lot of, over the last few years, there have been a lot of developments in TCPA law that have impacted class actions, have impacted um, Article Three standing, have impacted what is the definition of an auto dialer. Drazen itself, uh, some of the litigation and some of the value of the litigation and, and the stage where it's settled Drazen settled before the U.S. Supreme Court issued its significant ruling uh, last um, term or last year's term, 2021, in a case called Facebook versus DeGoyd, which essentially took a narrow uh, viewing of what is an auto dialer. But before that issue had been uh, resolved, the, the litigants in Drazen decided to settle the case. Now, Drazen involved both auto-dialed phone calls and auto-dialed um, text messages. When I say auto-dialed, allegedly auto-dialed phone calls and text messages. And the case settled, and basically the issue that went up on appeal had uh, involved coupon settlements. Let me pause and just discuss what coupon settlements are. Coupon settlements are something under the Class Action Fairness Act. Class Action Fairness Act went into place in 2005, which essentially has driven most consumer class actions or many consumer class actions from state court to federal court. The concept of coupon class actions had to do with an objection that you know, a plaintiff would be settling a case and the value of the settlement would be for a coupon, meaning that it, you know, question whether there could be a real value to the consumer. So a classic example would be something along the lines of, let's say it's a class action involving washing machines. So a washing machine maybe cost, I don't know, $750 for a new washing machine. I haven't priced them recently, but something around there. And let's say that the uh, claim is that the washing machine, I know there was a whole thing with moldy washing machines and some of these case laws that are popping into my head had to do with cases on, on moldy washing machines. I don't remember the names of the cases, 
but I did have a moldy washing machine. Um, the theory would be, well, we'll settle the claim and what we'll give you is a coupon for $50 to go buy a new washing machine. Not even a coupon to go buy anything you want at Sears or you know Walmart or whoever else sells washing machines. Not even a coupon to buy $50 worth of goods from whatever the washing machine manufacturer is. Just a coupon that if you want to go buy a new washing machine from perhaps a particular retailer and a particular uh, manufacturer of washing machines, you'll get a $50 you know, off. So instead of spending $750, you'll spend $50. And the theory is that's a coupon that is not, you know, that has fairly minimal value. So in a CAFA settlement, in, in the CAFA statute itself, there is a provision that says that essentially coupon settlements have to receive more heightened scrutiny. And I'm sort of summarizing and paraphrasing that because as we'll discuss in a minute, that doesn't really become what the case is about. Anyhow, getting back to Drazen, it had to do with GoDaddy, the, the web hosting company. Everybody sees their commercials on the Super Bowl every year. And GoDaddy was alleged to have made robocalls and robotext. And the, the settlement basically had a dual structure. In other words, if you were a claimant, in, if you claimed in the settlement, you could either get a set amount of money or you had the option for getting a coupon and the value of the coupon was going to be higher. Uh, how many times higher three was times it, David? Higher. About three times higher than the amount of that you would get in cash. So you could either opt for cash or for the coupon. However, and this is the important part, the settlement fund was based upon the amount of the cash. So Charles, you want to explain for a second uh, how the settlement funds in a, in a class action where a common fund typically works? Sure. Um, and, and it is a very interesting part of this decision. So in a typical um, class settlement with a common fund, you'll have a set amount of money set aside by the defendant. Um, in this case, I think it was about $35 million, um, from which uh, settlement payments will be made to class members who submit timely claims. And there's a whole process for the way that that tends to work involving claims forms and notices and claims administrators, um, which is a lengthy process that has to be approved by the court. Um, and typically there will be a fixed amount that is set aside for claimants. And then some percentage of that amount, usually between 25% and you know, 33%, maybe up to 40% sometimes, will be held back uh, as a, an attorney fee payment for the class counsel. And that that's the wrinkle in this case um, right. that's significant there. And do you want to discuss that? Right. So as Charles said, and it varies, you know, that's some of the numbers in the 11th Circuit. You can, in a common fund, you can probably get a little bit more in the 11th Circuit. The 9th Circuit may be capped at about 25%. Then there's just to add the gloss, there's something called the mega fund doctrine, where if you know it's one of these billion dollar settlements, some of the courts have said, well, maybe the amount has to be a little bit lower. But but you know, as Charles described, that's sort of the basics. The key issue that appeared to be the issue in the case was, well, how are you gonna calculate these common funds when it it is a hybrid coupon? 
do you look at the value of the coupons or the value of the theoretical value that everybody could have uh, claimed? And the, the, the plaintiffs basically said, well, the theoretical amount of the class, that if everybody who uh, received the claim form would have made a claim, there would have been thir- – and, and opted for cash, not the coupon – there would have been $35 million of cash available, you know, subject to lopping it off for the claims administration and the common fund. But that was the theoretical value of the, the settlement fund and calculated off that. The objector, by the way, the, the, the party who brought this appeal was the objector, said, no, 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 There, you have to look at and give the heightened scrutiny to the coupon, and that has a whole different basis in the value, and, and that is where the objector claimed that the district court erred. And back in June, a panel of three judges, Judge Charles Wilson, Judge Lisa Branch, and Branch, and Judge Gerald uh, Joe Flat, uh, sat on a panel and heard oral argument uh, about this case. And I will tell you, I listened to the whole oral argument and the oral argument all focused on these issues that we are discussing today. Um, you know, whether they this was a common fund, how you, whether the, it was a coupon settlement or not. And if it was not a coupon settlement, you know, was it fair? And if it was a coupon settlement, wasn't it fair? But there and was what, a wrinkle, right? There, and what was the wrinkle, David? <laughs> the wrinkle was the decision from the 11th Circuit had very little to do with all the issues that we've just talked about. Right. Instead, it had to do with standing. Right. And I'll turn it back to you to talk about the standing. No, exactly decision. that. And as David said, so six, you know, about two months or so after the oral argument, we have this 20-page unanimous decision uh, without, you know, getting into... The um, you know political backgrounds and whatever all I will generally say and, and David as an appellate lawyer maybe you may want to comment I will just say that from three judges who within the last uh, six or seven years of or six years post Spokio of Article Three case law in the Eleventh Circuit have had differences of opinion and Judge Wilson uh, has you know been aligned with perhaps the more capacious view of standing. And Judges Branch and Joe Flat have been perhaps aligned with the more limited view of standing. Would, would you agree with that characterization and add anything to it? Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And um, it, it's interesting, at the end of this decision, as we'll explain in a moment, they do send the, ca- the case back to the district court to redo their class definition. And, and you do wonder if that was the work of some sort of compromise among this panel. Sure. No, absolutely. So where this case came up was in an Article 3 TCPA question. And and I will tell you about half of the significant Article 3 decisions that the 11th Circuit has issued, particularly in published cases, following the U.S. Supreme Court's seminal standing decision in Spokio versus Robbins from 2016 have had to do with the the TCPA. Charles, do you want to just talk generally about, you know, what some of the the case law around Article 3 standing in the 11th Circuit has been? Yeah, and I think I'll I'll address that in the lens of the TCPA and, and focus really on one case that gets quite a bit of attention. 
in the Strazen opinion, which is the Salcedo case, um, which I, 2019, that our firm was involved yeah, in. 2019, and as Charles said, one of uh, our dear and uh, unfortunately departed uh, colleagues, uh, Rick Ovalman, was the uh, lawyer who argued the Salcedo case to the 11th Circuit on behalf of the uh, defendant. Rick was a, a very, very long time prominent uh, 11th Circuit and, and national appellate litigator and the chair of our appellate department and unfortunately uh, left us and passed away in, um, about a year after this, the Salcedo case. But I just wanted to mention that and I always reflect that it makes me think, um, uh, have you know, pleasant thoughts about how uh, you know, good of a, a lawyer and practitioner Rick was. But anyhow, Charles. Yeah, and I would add to that, the outcome of the case is not a surprise because of Rick's involvement. He was that good of a, a lawyer. Um, so Salcedo is incredibly important within the 11th Circuit, obviously, but I think it's had ripple effects. Um, it's changed the uh, the environment for TCPA plaintiffs throughout uh, the circuit. The long and short of the holding is that in the 11th Circuit, the receipt of one text message is no longer an automatic violation of the TCPA. So a plaintiff who receives one text message that would otherwise violate the TCPA does not have Article Three standing. And the way the court arrived at that conclusion in the Salcedo opinion was by conducting a thorough examination of the TCPA. Why was it enacted in the early 90s? What was the point? How have times changed? Uh, how do we apply a statute that was intended to address people getting unwanted calls during dinner at 6.30 on a Tuesday night to uh, fast forward 30 years and we're talking about people getting text messages while they're asleep or what, you know, a question of did they even get these? And so the Salcedo court focused on uh, the Article Three question. Did the plaintiff suffer an injury, in fact, uh, based on the receipt of one text message? And that analysis looked at, OK, the point of this statute was to prevent the uh, intrusion upon people's privacy, the interrupting their dinners, wasting their time, taking them away from whatever else they could be doing was the original intent. And the question with the text message is, if I get a text message that bothers me for one second because my phone buzzes, that's not the same as being getting up from my dinner table and interrupting my family dinner to turn down a telemarketer. Right. And so the court said, and there's some language in there about like a fleeting and ephemeral uh, harm is not sufficient. And so that decision uh, changed the landscape in, in the 11th Circuit because it then leads to the question of, well, if one text message isn't sufficient, how does that affect class settlements that include uh, individuals who receive both multiple text messages and single text messages? Right. And then in this case, the open question, what does that mean for people who received only one phone call? Right. So, and by the way, the Salcedo decision, of course, it was a two, uh, it was a three judge panel with a concurrence. So it was not essentially unanimous. The author of that opinion, Salcedo, was Judge Lisa Branch, who was on the uh, this panel here. So, you know, obviously, the we'll assume all the judges are familiar with all the cases from their court, but the author of Salcedo in particular was one of the judges on this panel. Um, the, the next TCPA case, which really becomes perhaps what will be the most significant case, in my opinion, in the 11th Circuit, 
uh, on the standing issue is Cordoba. Cordoba was issued about a year after Salcedo. And Cordoba dealt with a different provision of the TCPA. And Cordoba basically had to do with a provision of the TCPA which questions whether there is um, Article Three standing for receiving a call in violation of a company's internal do not call list policy. So there's a separate section of the TCPA, separate from the part that uh, Charles discussed, discussed from Salcedo. And that's important and it's probably the thing that I think is the biggest complication is that people just think of the TCPA where there's really four or five different parts of the TCPA that have different um, considerations on the standing questions. But the upside in Cordoba is the, the panel, also a unanimous opinion written by, in that one, a very long time 11th Circuit Judge Stanley Marcus. And what Judge Marcus said for the court in Cordoba is there's not automatic Article Three standing on a different element. It's actually the traceability element of Article Three standing for a violation of the internal do not call list provision because um, essentially if a company does not have an internal, I'm going to go through this super quickly and paraphrase and summarize, but if a company does not have an internal do not call list and then calls you, um, now the fact that they didn't have an internal do not call list is inconsistent with the statute to the extent it's inconsistent with the statute, but let's assume it is. And so uh, let's assume that you know my gym does not have an internal do not call list and um, they then call me. Now I haven't called, I haven't said, please don't call me. Their violation is they have not even had an internal do not call list to start with. So what the court in Cordoba said is, well, no, that violation, the fact that they don't have an internal do not call list, the harm that you have suffered is not traceable to their conduct because you, it's, you didn't ask not to be put on the internal do not call list. So what Judge uh, Marcus said for the court in Cordoba is essentially because the district court had not considered the question uh, as to whether the people who allegedly received their calls in Cordoba uh, had Article Three standing. Essentially what the court, the, the 11th Circuit said is the, the lower court, the, the Judge uh, Walker of the um, uh, Northern District of Georgia uh, had, I'm sorry, Judge Cohen of the Northern District of Georgia was the judge, had essentially assumed that everybody uh, who had received these calls had Article Three standing without actually determining if there was a method to, to figure out which people had requested not to be called. I mean, so the upside is what the court said in Cordoba is it is necessary for the court at the class certification stage to at least give some consideration to the Article Three standing issue on the predominance element. So what do we think of that, Charles? I mean, you and I have had cases where this has come up, uh, you know, in, in preparing for class certification. Yeah, I think it is a 
quite frankly, I think it is a another arrow in the quiver of defense counsel in the Eleventh Circuit. Um, and I think the uh, the the Drazen case is another interesting wrinkle. I know we're going to get to that, um, but in defending against certification and um, positioning cases from the from the get go to to deal with those issues. Uh, predominance is always a very important one, and that's a question of whether individual issues will predominate over class-wide issues. Um, if the answer to that is yes, it's an argument against certifying a class. So um, one of the issues that we commonly come up against here is how are you going to sift through sometimes the tens or hundreds of thousands of potential class members to determine which among them have standing and which don't. Uh, that's a question that has become harder to answer and more significant uh, in the 11th Circuit, especially especially now. Right. David, anything to add from your perspective as an appellate lawyer who, and also uh, works on these class certification issues on, on how that standing at the class certification stage sort of looks as a, you know, let's let's take the pre-Drazen, the, the post-Cordoba pre-Drazen analysis of it. What, what, what do you make of that? Well, I think what it's clear is that parties and district courts who are interested in settling class claims and, and getting approval for a class settlement really need to devise a class definition that ensures that all the members, not just the named class representative, has Article Three standing. Um, and to the extent the district courts, like the district court here, was not doing that in the 11th Circuit, um, that, that needs to change. And it's going to make for a much more rigorous analysis. Um, the extra level of complexity on top of all of this, as if it wasn't hard enough to make sure that the whole class had Article Three standing, is just the question of what itself constitutes Article Three standing, right. which has been an evolving question of law, both in the 11th Circuit, but primarily at the U.S. Supreme Court. And you see that this is tripping this is tripping people up because it keeps changing. And you right. saw in the Drazen case, the, the, the court said... It's not the district court's fault. Right. Right. That the, these decisions have come out since the district court made its decision to approve this. Right. You know, that, that's, of course, uh, as we said, TransUnion, which was the significant Supreme Court case that came out in June of 2021. And even uh, from the time that the um, GoDaddy opinion, Drazen, was approved at the district court level, there was also... 11th Circuit case law that came out. I think Glasser came out after. So, to, but to me, one of the things that was significant from Cordoba is, and I'll sort of, you know, maybe go against um, or, you know, just say what the opinion says. Cordoba was not definitive on that every class member has to have Article 3 standing as a prerequisite for a contested class certification motion. Remember the difference between a contested Rule 23 class certification motion that the class is going to be certified and then you'll go to the next stage, you'll give everybody notice and presumably have summary judgment and, and then if summary judgment isn't granted at trial, Drazen is a settlement. So in Cordoba, the error that the court identified was that the court, the district court, 
did not even give consideration to the question of if I think the language that the Cordoba court used were, you know, would a great many people in the class not have Article Three standing? So that's where the district courts that, you know, where this issue has raised, that's sort of uh, where the play in the joints has been as to, you know, that the great many question. Then we get to Drazen. And, you know, what happens, David, and Drazen on the standing issue? Well, um, one of the things that, that, that happens is the district court says it's sufficient if the name plaintiff has standing. And it's also sufficient because it was a, a nationwide class. If some of the members that would not have standing in the 11th Circuit, they can still be in the class in the 11th Circuit because they would have standing in other circuits. That's the district court's decision. Yes, that's the district. So let, let's just pause because that one seemed kind of unusual. Uh, as Charles was talking about, the question of Article 3 standing has really, you know, led to a lot of circuit splits. Even after TransUnion, there are still extant circuit splits. So on the question of Article 3 standing for text messages, uh, at least pre-TransUnion, the Salcedo decision was an outlier. Other circuits had gone the other way. So the Ninth Circuit had a case called Van Patten, which had a pretty broad Article 3 standing. Second Circuit has a case called Melito. And, and other circuits as well. What the district court said is, well, you look at the home place of the class, not the name plaintiff, but the individual class members, and if they would have standing in their home states, in their home circuit, um, then they have standing. What, what did the 11th Circuit say about that, David? I mean, they said that was wrong. Right. Um, and that the district court had relied on a Fifth Circuit case for that proposition and the Fifth Circuit case just quite simply didn't say that. Right. And so you 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 couldn't do that. And that's part of the reason why the Eleventh Circuit sent this case back for basically a do-over. Right. In other words, so in that point, you know, standing is a it it's more of a transubstantive thing as opposed to a you know choice of law thing. So you may have, uh, you know, sometimes in a class action, not under a federal statute uh, where, you know, it's the nationwide law, you may have a class action where, you know, it's a claim for negligence. And so I'll take an example. Statute of limitations on negligence are different in the different states. So you may have a claim where the court says, well, the elements of negligence are basically the same, you know, everywhere, duty, breach, damages. But the statute of limitations may be different. So what you may have a you can have a you know a fifty state class action on negligence theoretically, but if there's different statute of limitations, you know the people from Georgia may not be. I have no idea what the statute of limitations on negligence in Georgia is, but just as an example, they may you know their statute of limitations may be two years, whereas certain people in a state with a limitations with five years, you know if if the violation was committed three years ago, then you could make that determination. What the 11th Circuit said, no, essentially the TCPA is a federal law and the question of standing, it's a, you know, we, our decision on that is, that's our decision on that. You know, the U.S. Supreme Court could tell us we're wrong and tell us we're right, 
But it, there, the question of standing uh, from the 11th Circuit's perspective is, you know, that is the question. It doesn't matter what the Ninth Circuit has said about that. It's, so anyhow. Is it fair to, to characterize their decision as saying we this is a threshold jurisdictional matter and if we do not have if the district court or any court within the circuit does not have jurisdiction from a standing perspective that's the that's the end of it correct yeah so that's the first part now then we get into uh what the 11th circuit says now that we we've you know gotten in because we've resolved we're not going to look at how the standing question would would have played out if the case was in in california district court in California. Now we're going to say, well, does this question the whole settlement, the standing for the whole settlement because of Cordoba, whereas Cordoba says that at least at the class certification stage, the court has to give uh, examination of the Article 3 standing question. But now in Drazen, we're going to have an agreed class certification, essentially, and but now the 11th Circuit says, well, we have the standing question. We identified in Cordoba that at least has to be part of the contested class certification analysis. I'll give my aside. I, I tend to think that some of the commentary, you know, I don't know if it's dicta, however you would characterize it. I think the Drazen Court's characterization of Cordoba may have gone a little further than actually Cordoba itself went for what has to be done at the contested class certification. Leave that aside. Now we're talking about a settlement class. And now for the first time in Drazen, the 11th Circuit says, David. Says that, that you have to consider uh, standing at that stage. And and, and really, you, you should consider standing th- throughout a case. I mean, right. that, that shouldn't be a controversial proposition, quite frankly. I mean, it, it's interesting that they sent the threshold issue of standing back to the district court. Probably they needed to do that for factual development, um, even though it's largely a jurisprudential question. Right. Um, and maybe there were some strategic reasons for sending it back rather than deciding it in this appeal. Right. Because what happens in a class settlement let's assume there was no objector or the court overruled all the objections and there was no appeal. There's going to be a class settlement. Money will be distributed. And then there's going to be a final judgment. That's the end of the case. Um, there's nothing, you know, once there's a class settlement and there's no objections, that's the case is going to end. And basically the, the, the through line from this 11th Circuit opinion is, well, you need at some point to resolve the Article Three question, and what you can't do, and um, what the Eleventh Circuit in Cordoba favorably cited, at least a concurrence from a case called Tyson versus Babafukio. I like to say Babafukio. Um, that what Justice <laughs> Roberts's concurrence uh, in Babafukio became. Uh, part of the case law in Cordoba and, and in TransUnion in Justice Kavanaugh's majority opinion in, in uh, TransUnion favorably cited and, and essentially made the Babafukio concurrence binding U.S. Supreme Court case law. And basically what the chief said in Babafukio was before a court grants relief to anybody, at, ultimately the court needs to determine that that person 
has Article Three standing. So in a class settlement, somebody is getting relief. So essentially what Drazen is doing, it is taking the Baba Fukio concept, which at least was only a concurrence but became binding case law under TransUnion and Cordoba, and says you basically have to answer the Baba Fukio question in a class settlement context. So that is Drazen. There is a very interesting TCPA issue. Where sta- where's the line on standing for TCPA cases that will be the subject of another podcast. Uh, and we will, can even do yet another podcast on the standing issue in general in the 11th Circuit. But so there's a lot of open questions after Drazen. What I can tell you is anecdotally, even in the month since Drazen issued, uh, district court cases who are uh, in both contested class certifications and class settlements are considering this decision. And litigants who are thinking about settling uh, class actions with potential standing issues are certainly mindful of it. So it's really having real-world application. There was, uh, very uh, last week, a petition for reconsideration slash rehearing on Bonk that is pending. Uh, our, what does our resident appellate lawyer tell us what happens with a petition for rehearing or, peti- or rehearing on Bonk? Well, the petition for rehearing is decided by the the panel, and uh, the court will see if there's a sufficient number of judges on the the full 12-member court. Um, They'll take a poll and see if there's a sufficient number for rehearing. Um, We'll see what happens. I, I would be surprised if that motion is granted. Yeah, and, and I would say, I mean, there, there may be something on reconsideration that you know, there's a small part, as we've talked about on Cordoba. I, I, I think there was an issue on Cordoba that really came from a different case called Glasser that Charles and I will cover in our Deep Dive Standing podcast um, that I think got maybe um, mapped onto this case. I will say uh, on the rehearing on Bonk, just because of the makeup of this particular panel, it is, and it was, this was a unanimous decision with this particular panel. Just reading the tea leaves, it would be surprising if there were um, a sufficient amount of votes otherwise to grant a rehearing on Bonk. Uh, so that that's just our reading tea leaves a bit with the 11th Circuit, and it's uh, you know one of my fun parlor games that I like to play with, with David, who's an appellate lawyer here in the 11th Circuit. So that is what we have to say about Drazen, but watch this space, watch the 11th Circuit to see what happens. And uh, we, we hope you enjoyed our introductory companion classified podcast. So follow the blog, uh, follow this space for, for more podcasts. And uh, we, we uh, hope you've enjoyed, Charles. Yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Stay tuned for the next one. David? Yeah, thanks everyone. It's been a blast. All right, thank you. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening.